Hello, I'm Jeff Smith, and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets to success and to share them here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money, and in these programs, I'm looking at different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame adversity to keep on going, and I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In this episode, I'm talking with Clint Arthur, celebrity entrepreneur. Clint is the provocative, truth-telling author of no less than 21 best-selling books, including Celebrity Entrepreneurship, Breakthrough Your Upper Limits on TV, and his Pulitzer Prize-nominated masterpiece, Wisdom of the Men. In this interview, I want to find out how he went from driving a taxi for six years to multi-millionaire, celebrity entrepreneur, working with, get this, Mike Tyson, Ringo Starr, Mick Jagger, Brooke Shields, Oprah Winfrey, to name but a few. And in addition to that, he's worked with five presidents of the United States. This is a real rags-to-riches story, talking about extremely high levels of success and what it takes to get there. So let's bring in the man himself. Welcome to the show, Mr. Clint Arthur. Thank you very much. Hey, Clint, you've achieved so much in your life. You've met so many incredible people. It's difficult for me to know where to begin. However, before we get into your secrets of success, tell me about your childhood. I know you were born in New York City. What was life like for you as a child? When you grow up in New York City, you take a lot of taxis. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I don't know, man, I always wanted to be a taxi driver. And, you know, even though I graduated from the Wharton Business School, when you think about New Year's Eve of the millennium, what were you doing? Were you partying with family and friends? Were you getting some Y2K cash out of an ATM? I was behind the wheel of yellow cab number 6087. And I was driving these two guys to a party. This was in Los Angeles, California. And I was driving these two guys to a party in the Hollywood Hills. I'm listening in on their conversation. And one of them goes, hey, man, did you hear about Mr. Carrera? They made him the last partner right before the Goldman Sachs IPO. And I turn around and I go, are you talking about Chris Carrera? How do you know Mr. Carrera? Chris Carrera was a pledge in my fraternity at the Wharton Business School. Wow. He was one of the punks that I used to make dance around the living room of our house with their tidy whities on top of their heads <laughs> when I was the pledge master. And here he had just cashed out a gazillion dollars during the Goldman Sachs IPO. And I was driving yellow cab number 6087 in Los Angeles for years and years and years as I chased the Hollywood dream. And I, you know, I grew up a lower middle class kid. I didn't know what money was when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know what money was really after graduating from the Wharton Business School. All I knew was I just didn't have it, but it, it didn't have an impression on me. I was circulating. I was brothers with all these children of millionaires. You know, the reason I went to the Wharton Business School was because I read about it in a book and the main character of this novel had graduated from this fantastic business training school called the Wharton Business School. And I looked it up in the encyclopedia and I learned that it was a real thing and that the children of the world's top business tycoons would go there to learn about business. And sure enough, it was true. I mean, 
you know, Omaha Steaks. That guy was a fifth generation entrepreneur. He was one of my fraternity brothers. You may have heard of this guy named Saul Steinberg. He was a Wall Street tycoon. He owned a big insurance company called Reliance. He extorted millions and millions of dollars out of Disney in the 80s when he tried to green mail the Disney Corporation. His son was one of my fraternity brothers. It was a real thing, but even still, I didn't understand. You know, when you're young, you think you know everything, but really, you know nothing. Yes, absolutely. Let, let, you know let, nothing about yeah. anything. Let me just put a timeline on this. So you grew up in New York. You wanted to be a taxi driver. You became a taxi driver in New York. How old were you at this point? I was in my mid-20s driving a taxi in Los Angeles. While I, after, after graduating from Wharton Business School, I go back to get the cheers from my parents. And instead, they just get into a huge argument. And my dad storms out of the house. And I'm sitting on the couch with my mom in the living room. And I go, you know, mom, the way he resents you all these years, have you been cheating on dad? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, holy cow, where did that question come from? I never even thought that one time before yeah. in my whole life. And then I'm thinking, wow, that's the rudest thing I ever said to anybody. And then I'm thinking, how come she's not answering the question? And she goes, he's not your real father. Your real father was a doctor at the fertility clinic we went to for six years trying to have you and you look just like that guy. And that is what rocked me off my course. See, I was on track. I had an offer from an investment bank on the 87th floor of number one World Trade Center. And the next day I call up the investment bank vice president and say, sir, thank you very much for the offer. I've decided I don't want to be an investment banker anymore even though I just graduated from the Wharton Business School in the late 80s, and that's what everyone was doing and wanted to do. That's how come Chris Carrera was made the last partner at Goldman, because he did it, but I didn't. And instead, I ran off to Hollywood and tried to find myself. Who was I? Because I didn't know who I was anymore, and I sure as heck didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up anymore. I started writing screenplays and going on auditions trying to become a movie star in oh, Hollywood. Right. And that is what put me behind the wheel of a taxi mm -hmm. for years and years and years in the 90s, all the way through to the 2000. Uh, and there you go. Wow. You must, I, I can't imagine what that would have felt like when your mother says your father is not your father. Your world, I, I just don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. It's, it's amazing world. how much of your own understanding of who you are, how much of your identity is founded on who you think your parents are. Now, I read in Forbes magazine that 30% of all people don't really know who their actual father is. And if you think about what it takes to conceive a child, that statistic is somewhat believable. Yeah. And I believe it. Yeah. So how did your parents feel about you being a taxi driver then? Oh, this was the worst thing in the world. I mean, especially for my father who raised me, he was an accountant. The pride of his life was that his son graduated from the Wharton Business School and here he had become the Wharton taxi driver. <laughs> Not a great thing. Yeah, yeah. But, but then, you know, uh, luckily for me, that happened. You know, what is the key to success? The key to success I believe is trying with all your heart and soul, but beyond what you thought you would ever have to do, paying more dues than you thought you would ever have to pay. I wrote 30 screenplays. I really did think that if I wrote a good enough screenplay that I could become the star of the movie. And I had producers who optioned my screenplays and said, you're going to be the star of my next movie. And then I would never hear from them again. Okay, so what happened? How did you get from behind the wheel of the taxi? Right. Well, that night on New Year's Eve of the millennium, I'm counting up my money. $513. I was supposed <laughs> to be a, a big special person. In a, where was Chris Carrera tonight trying, dancing at the Rainbow Room? And that was the night that I decided 
I had done this long enough, 13 years of chasing a dream. You know, you're supposed to make it in 10 years. You're spo it's, it's supposed to take 10 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> I love that. And, and right. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. what it's supposed to take. And I went 11 years, I went 12, 12 years, I'm overdue. And then came 13 years. And I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm never going to write again. Okay. And that was actually the second time that I quit writing. <laughs> I'd written 30 screenplays and 10 books during that period of time. Right before I started driving a taxi, one of my books was published by Penguin USA as the big book of their summer. And then I became a taxi driver. And I decided if this is what writing is all about, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to be a writer if you're going to have to be a taxi driver when you're a graduate of the best business school in the world. And that's when I made up my mind. I just want to have a normal life. That's all I wanted. I just wanted to be, I wanted to make some money, have, a, you know, make some money, buy a house, maybe meet a nice girl, get married. That's what I, that's all I wanted to do was be normal at that point. Okay. And it took me a while to get out of taxi driving, but I got out of driving taxis and got into selling gourmet food. And once I started making some money, I met an amazing woman. And luckily for me, she loved me for me. And she believed in me even more than I believed in myself. She encouraged me to get into real estate. This was the early 2000s. And I started building houses in Los Angeles and selling gourmet food and getting fat and happy. And I got very <laughs> fat and very happy, but not so happy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. So moving on a bit then, writing, I guess, never left you, did it? Because... You've written 21 books so far, and I'm sure there's more to come. Sadly, we don't have time to cover them all. But what I want to do now, Clint, is focus upon your Pulitzer Prize-nominated masterpiece, Wisdom of the Men. Now, I have the audio version. I've listened to it. But can you please give me a brief summary of what it's about and how and why you decided to write this book. In the fall of 2008, the world was melting down in the great financial crisis. And I was at a men's self-help campfire. What does that look like? 18 naked guys dancing around a campfire. And I'm one of them. And I look across the yellow and orange crackling flames and I see the shaman pointing at me across the fire. Mm -hmm. You don't know it yet, but you're out dead. What are you talking about, man? Eight years ago, I was driving a cab. Now I'm a millionaire. I was living on a little boat. Now I live in a mansion. You're already dead. You just don't know it. Now, that question, stay, it, that statement stayed in my mind and evolved into a question. On New Year's Day of 2009, I asked myself, what if the shaman is right? What if I am already dead? Or what if this is going to be the last year of my life? What would I want to accomplish And I was surprised that the first thing I wrote down on that list of things that I would want to accomplish in the last year of my life was that I had to write my book about what I learned at the Wharton Business School that enabled me to become a millionaire mm -hmm. in a few short years when I had been driving a taxi. And that got me writing again. See, because I'm a writer. Yeah. And the wisdom of the men came out of my work with men's self-help groups because every time we'd have a meeting, every week we'd meet for three hours. And when I became the leader of the team, which I did after about a year and a half, at, a, at the midway point of every meeting, I would say, is there any man who needs the wisdom of the men? Mm -hmm. And amazingly, when we would start to focus all of our collective attention on just one man, it was like magic. It was like collective wisdom for, on a cellular level would come up to help that person. The goal of the book, The Wisdom of the Men, was to provide the answers for people to, to any question that you might have about your life. If you read The Wisdom of the Men, the answer is in there because what is The Wisdom of the Men? I've been asking, just like you ask, what does it take to become successful? 
I've been asking for decades now, what's the most important thing you ever learned? Or I've been learning from people, what's the most important thing you ever learned? And those answers are what's in the book. The book is full of stories about the people I met and the answers to that question. And originally it was conceived that I would only that I would write about all the, the most important men, my dad, my grandfather, the guy who gave me my first job. But ultimately, when I looked at the list of men that I wanted to write stories about, I realized that if I only included the Bill Clinton and Joe Biden and Mike Tyson and Mick Jagger and Andy Warhol, only the famous ones that I would still have enough to create 91,000 words, which is over 340 pages of the best stuff. And I, and what I've learned, look, it all, it all comes down to how do you sell books? Because the reason, how do you get people to read? See, the lesson that I did not learn when I was driving a taxi in Los Angeles, when I was chasing the Hollywood dream for 13 years is that you could be the greatest actor in the world, but if you're nobody, nobody's going to hire you because nobody wants to work with nobody. Not in Hollywood, not anywhere. You think you're exempt because your business is different. That's the big joke in my community. Yeah, but my business is different. It's not. The only thing that matters is not what you do or how good you are, but who you are. And who you are is a function of who you are really perceived to be. When people heard you reading my introduction, that introduction is really the work that I have accomplished over the last 10 years of being a celebrity entrepreneur is creating an introduction like that so that people think that I'm worth listening to, that I might have something good to say based on who I've been associated with, what I have done, where I have been, my credits, my mark, those are all my marketing. And that's the lesson I did not understand in Hollywood, but over the past 11, 12 years of being an author and trying to figure out how do you sell books so that I wouldn't have to quit writing again for the third time. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I've come to understand. That's how you become successful is you have to create that marketing, that perception that you are somebody. And the fascinating thing, this is really the fascinating thing. How you become successful is by becoming successful. By building up the marketing, you transform. Having, you know, my first celebrity selfie, I think, was with President George H.W. Bush. That's I not was, a bad selfie to begin with, is it? <laughs> <clears throat> That's not a hard one. That's not a horrible one. I was, I was visiting one of my gourmet food clients who was a chef at the Wynn Resort in Las Vegas on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. It's just me and the executive chef of the Danielle Blue Brasserie, a multi-million dollar restaurant. Me and the executive chef are in there and he's stirring a giant vat of lobster bisque with a stick blender the size of a baseball bat. And I say to him, you know, you're the executive chef of this huge restaurant. Why don't you have one of your sous chefs do that for you? He says, because this is my métier. I love it. <laughs> That's his thing. <laughs> and just at that moment, boom, I see these three guys in suits. Two of them are secret service agents. And the third one is George H.W. Bush. And they just go walking through the kitchen. And I go, holy cow, that was the president of the United States. And this French chef goes, really? <laughs> <laughs> so I go running after him and, you know, I, I had, I love taking seminars. I love taking seminars. One of the seminars I had taken was with a man named Mark Victor Hansen, who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. Mm -hmm. And one of the pieces of advice that he gave in the seminar was you should always carry a camera with you. Because you never know if you're going to meet someone famous or special that you want to get a photo with. And I happened to have a digital camera in my pocket. This is before cell phones had cameras. Sure, yeah. And I just go running after George Bush and I go up to the Secret Service agent. And I go, hey, can I get a photo with the president? 
And he goes, sure. <laughs> I go up to him and I said, sir, I, I voted for you. I didn't really vote for him. I never actually voted for him. I voted for Ronald Reagan, but not for him. I said, sir, I voted for you. And um, he said I could get a photo. He's like, sure. And we take the photo. And I said, um, sir, what's the most important thing you ever learned? And he said, well, young man, that's a mighty big question. I guess you have to say that you have to keep doing the things you love in this life. Now, these are the kinds of answers. Like people think, people think that George Bush's answer was going to be something political. It wasn't political. It was personal. The question is a question that elicits a personal response, not a, not a professional response from people. It really is. Because it's not about their politics. It's not about what they do for a living. It's about being a person. What's the most important thing you ever learn? And George Bush loved to jump out of airplanes wearing parachutes. He did it when he was 90 years old. Kept doing the things he loved in his life. And I think that's really an important answer. You got to keep doing the things you loved. It's, it's shaped a lot of my life. You know, now I've, I've moved to Acapulco. I primarily live in Acapulco, Mexico, because the thing I love the most is to swim in tropical water. I go down to the ecological beach at the bottom of my neighborhood on the bottom of the hill and I swim in tropical waters anytime I want because that's what I love doing. And that's the advice of George H.W. Bush. And that's really what this book is all about. How's that? Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm going to reverse your favorite question to you. What's the most important thing you've ever learned? That who you are is more important than what you do or sell. You see, and, and that really goes to the heart of it all. Mm. And that it's not about the work that you do in this life. It's about who you become. That's, now, the that, work that, that you... That's, really, that that's you, really, really deep. And I can feel people saying, how do I discover who I am? So given your journey... How did you discover who you truly are? Well, that comes out of the work that you do. I mean, you're going to spend most of your time probably working, and that's going to shape who you are. So who you are is more important than what you actually do or sell, but what you do or sell will develop who you are. And I do a lot of these, you know, I focus my work what I've learned is that the marketing of who you are shapes who you are in the eyes of your customers and prospects and also in your own self. See, all I do now, yeah, I love writing. I love writing. I'm a writer. I love writing so much that I quit writing twice and came back to figure it out the third time. Mm -hmm. And what I've come to understand in figuring out how do you sell books is that the marketing of, of the book, the marketing of you, the marketing of you is how you sell the book because people are trying to buy a piece of you. They want to buy into your mind. And the marketing of you is more important than the book. All I really focus on is in my professional career, the marketing of me. The work that I do writing the book, that's fun. That's like my hobby. My hobby is writing the book. My job is marketing Clint Arthur so that I can sell books and tickets to seminars and coaching and consulting. That's, that's my job. My job is marketing me so I can sell all the things that I quote unquote do for clients. And along the way, the marketing of me, which is what I do, has shaped who I am. Mm. Because meeting all these people, Martha Stewart, Dr. Oz, Mike Tyson, Mick Jagger, all of that is work. That's my work. And along the way, meeting all those people, you know, I think it was Charlie Tremendous Jones. He said, your life will be the same except for the books that you read and the people that you meet. Well, those are the people I meet. All the people that I met, they're in the book. Here's the cover of the book. Uh, you can't see it on Zoom, but 
I'll you put know, a link in the show notes so they can see Wisdom of the Men. George Clooney, Tommy Lee Jones, Dr. Oz, Eli Manning, uh, Robert Downey Jr., Dr. Drew, Jerry from Ben and Jerry's, Dog the Bounty Hunter. All these people are in the book. And they are the people that I've met. And they have changed me. And they have helped me to understand who I am. How's that? That's great. Now, you've finished the book. You've written it. As an author, how do you feel about the book yourself? Are you pleased with it? You know, I was... Um, I wrote this book in Venice, Italy. I was so inspired by Venice, Italy. I was intimidated by the book. It took me seven years to get ready to write the book. Mm -hmm. And I only became certain that I could do it justice the first time that I went to Venice, Italy. My wife and I put on a conference at Carnegie Hall with Martha Stewart and Ice-T mm -hmm. and Jerry from Ben and & Jerry's and Dan Kennedy and Michael Gerber and many, many others. It was called The Living Legends of Entrepreneurial Marketing at Carnegie Hall. And after that, I took my wife on a triumphant tour of Europe. And one of the first places we went to was Venice, Italy. And people said, oh, you only need two days in Venice. So I only booked us for two days in Venice. But as soon as we arrived there, I was like, oh, my God, this place is so inspirational, ingenious, creative, beautiful, inspiring. If I could spend enough time here, I could write Wisdom of the Men and have it do justice to the topic, to the subject, to the ambition of the book. And it took me almost two years to get back there because of the pandemic, couldn't get back to Venice, Italy. So I waited to write the book in Venice, Italy. And all that time, I'm like, oh, man, I hope I don't die before I get to write my book in Venice, Italy. You know? <laughs> and when I was in Venice, Italy, we went back 15 days at the top hotel in Venice, Italy on points mm -hmm. in a suite. And it took me 10 days to write the book. I, di I dictate my books. I don't type anymore. I just talk because um, I'm not just an author. I'm a speaker. And what I've learned is that because I tell my stories as a speaker over and over and over, it helped me to write the book with very little editing required because I'd already told these stories many times and I was just retelling the same stories again after practicing. It's a great way to write. On the last morning of writing my book, it was about seven o'clock in the morning and I'm in San Marco Square in Venice, Italy. And I finish the last chapter and I'm like feeling the anticlimax. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, is this all there is? Is that it? Is that good enough? Is that doing justice to wisdom of the men? All this waiting and planning and time. I actually made a Facebook Live video about that. It, it's a very strange feeling. The book is finished. Now I have to let go of my baby. Now did I do good enough? Did I? Yeah, did yeah. I, well, that, did, that, that's my question. You finished it now. You look back in retrospect. Are you happy? Are you happy with what you've done with the book? Has it achieved what you wanted to achieve? The book itself. In many ways, it has exceeded my ambitions for the book. The Pulitzer Prize nomination uh, sold a lot of copies, a, a best-selling book. You know, I love the book. I think it's awesome. I, a lot of my clients, people who've read it, tell me it's awesome. And it is. I, I have the audio version of you reading it. I love it. Thank you. I, I really put my whole life into that book. And there's two things that I want to say about that in re relation to this question. Number one is the golden balloon. The golden balloon is a concept that I teach in my seminars. Here's the short version. When Clients and prospects hear about you and your accomplishments. They always look up to them. 
they always go, ah. Whereas you, knowing what it took to do whatever it was and knowing what it actually was and knowing what it could have been, you always think, ah, ah, versus, ah, because familiarity breeds contempt. You're never going to think of your own stuff as good as others will think of it looking in from the outside. You on the inside looking out, you see all the cracks and the flaws and what it could have been. Or just based on the fact that it's yours, you think less of it than people who it's not theirs. That's the first concept. And then the second part of it is that familiarity breeds contempt. You know, knowing your own stuff, you're always going to think less of your own stuff. So it's, it's really tough to, to judge your own work. I think it's great. I've read the book many, many times. I'm getting ready to translate it into Spanish. And in many ways, it's helped me to become more of the man that I've always wanted to be, which has been, that's the goal of all the work that I'd started doing with the men was to be the man you've always wanted to be. That's really the goal of the book was to help me to become the man that I always wanted to be and to help the readers or listeners of the audio. And by the way, the audible is on it's the audio version is on audible. It's one credit to get an audible version of this book. If you're enjoying the sound of my voice or the stories that I'm telling you'll enjoy the whole audible book. And I don't know about you, but I got a lot of audible credits that I just can't seem to get rid of. So (laughs) I, I have, I have the book on audible. I love it. I've said already. So I was really, really super, really looking forward to this interview today. And the audible production sounds just like you right now. It's, (laughs) it's great. It's great. It's, it's um it's not dictatorial or anything like this this is the heart and soul of Clint Arthur that's what really comes across and that's what i'm hearing now and that's why i ask when when i asked you are you happy with this and that's what i was searching to find out did did you get it okay i have a slightly different question for you now so <clears throat> you hit on a some really mega important things about books, successful authors, and things like that, because I've helped lots of people to write books. And I've also have many people come to me who have written a book, but it doesn't sell. Now, you and I know why and all of those things. But I want to tap into your experience right now. What advice, having gone through all of your trials and tribulations, successes and failures, if someone now says, Clint, I want to write a book, but I want to write a book that sells. Because the two are very different things, right? Some people might want to write a book, and, and that's, that, that's it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's other people who want to say, you know, I'd love to write a bestseller. So what's the process? You got to understand what Robert Kiyosaki says. He says, I'm not the best writing author, but I am the best selling author. And these two things are different. They're completely different. And the quality of the book has nothing to do with how the sales are going to be. There was a very famous book. Remember the Celestine Prophecy? I don't, I'm afraid, no. Oh, my God. It was a big self-published book and very poorly written book. And, you know, the people say uh, Fifty Shades of Grey was not a literary masterpiece and yet was a big best-selling book. And so what's the difference? What, What makes something sell versus not? And that is marketing. It's all marketing. And you really need to understand that your job 
as an author is a two-pronged job and you should really think of your work as the writing as the fun part. That is the fun part. For me, it's the artistic creativity of being a writer and doing my best and, you know, treating myself well. I mean, going to Venice, oh my God, it was so amazing to go write a book in Venice and I'm going to go do it again because it was so amazing. Amazing place to write. But then comes the work. The work is the marketing. And when you finally get this, you you think you're marketing the book. It's not about marketing the book. It's about marketing you because people are buying people. People buy people. They don't buy products. I On the back of my previous book was called Celebrity Entrepreneurship. On the back cover of that book, I state the following the big problem most entrepreneurs have is that they think people are buying their product or service when in fact they're actually buying you. Most entrepreneurs, and if you're an author, that makes you an entrepreneur. Most entrepreneurs have competition who have very similar products or service. Maybe your book is a detective novel. Maybe your book is a self-help book. Maybe your book is a uh, a book of poetry. Well, there are other detective novels, other self-help books, other books of poetry that are competing with yours. The only difference between your book and the others is you. That's the only real difference. Everything else is subjective. The only real objective difference is the author. And that's why I focus exclusively all my work is just marketing Clint Arthur. Okay. So you're going to write another book. When does the marketing begin and when does the writing begin? Which comes first? Well, here I am already marketing that book six months in advance. I met Marcy Shymoff, the author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, Chicken Soup for the Woman's Soul. And she told me she starts marketing her book six months in advance. And I haven't even, I haven't even come up with the outline yet, but I'm telling you, I'm working on like an international spy thriller. I'm going to do my first fiction work. Cool. And I'm going to, yeah, I'm, you know, I I feel like I've kind of written everything I have to say in the nonfiction world already. I wrote what I learned at the Wharton Business School. I wrote what I learned about being a celebrity entrepreneur. I wrote what I learned about everything in life and wisdom of the men. I mean, all the biggest answers to all the biggest questions are, are in wisdom of the men. And I'm just not feeling a need to write any more nonfiction really. Although I have a bunch of, I keep lists of topics of books that I might want to write, but I think I want to write something in fiction and see how it goes. So the marketing of the work begins before the work ever begins. Here I am. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I speak to budding authors. My favorite thing I love to say when they say, Hey Jeff, I'd like to write a book. And I say, you know what happens when you write a book? And they say, no. I said, nothing. Absolutely <laughs> nothing. You have to do all the work beforehand. And your goal and the planning is all done months and months and more months before you write a single word. And Clint, I am so glad and so happy that you brought up that point because people don't get it. And you said so eloquently that's the difference between books that sell and books that don't. So that's awesome. Okay, so we've spoken about your books. I, I will come back on a couple of guests in a moment. But you've met and you've worked with, gosh, so many famous people, successful people. But I'm going to put you on the spot right now. Are you ready? Okay, leaving the five US presidents aside for one moment. We'll come back to them. Which of the celebrities you've worked with was the real, which of them were the real standout people for you? And what lessons did you learn from them? Mick Jagger answered my question. Sir Mick, what's the most important thing you ever learned? He said, You can't always get what you want, but if you try, sometimes you might find you get what you need. And I know it's just a lyric from a song, and I and I know that people may think, oh, he's just being flip, 
but he's not, you know, first of all, he's Sir Mick Jagger. He can say whatever he wants. Number two, he wrote the song and it's one of the greatest songs of all time. And number three, that song is the answer. You can't always get what you want. You know, I wanted to become a movie star. I couldn't get that. But what I did get was an understanding of the most important thing in business. It took me all those years of banging my head up against the brick wall of Hollywood's dream to come to understand that even if I was the best actor in the world, since I wasn't Tom Cruise, I wasn't going to get the jobs. And that's what I needed. I needed to understand that because understanding that has enabled me to be able to say that I am an author. People say, what do you do? I'm an author and a speaker and a coach. That's what I do. And to be able to say that is a great privilege. It really truly is. To be able to earn your living from creating out of thin air, taking your creativity, putting it on a page and making something that makes you millions of dollars, it's a real honor and privilege to be able to say and do and be that guy who is that author, speaker, coach. And what I needed to understand was that who you are is more important than what you actually do or sell. And so it took me 13 years of frustration chasing a dream that never happened. Why, why did it happen for Robert Downey Jr. and not me? You know, in eighth grade, I was Tony in West Side Story in the Junior High School 104 production of West Side Story. And Robert Downey Jr. was the star of the other play that the school did that year, Hair. And naturally, as the stars of the, of the plays, we became friends. And one day we went to see his dad's movie, which was playing in an art house theater in Greenwich Village. And after the movie, we went walking to go get a falafel sandwich. And he goes, hang on a second. And he ducks into a candy store and comes out. We're 12, 13 years old, comes out with a pack of Marlboro Reds, pulls one out, <laughs> lights it up. I'm like looking at him. He, then he takes the pack of cigarettes and crushes it in his fist and throws it on the ground. And I look at him even bigger and, I, and he goes, I just wanted one. Now, that shows you an insight into Robert Downey's willpower. He just wanted one cigarette, threw away the pack. But everybody knows Robert Downey's willpower wasn't enough to keep him from becoming a drug addict, mm -hmm. going to jail, prison because of his drug addictions. But then he comes out of prison and is lucky enough to get hired onto another movie produced by a woman named Susan Levine. This is where the story becomes really fascinating. Who is Susan Levine? Susan Levine worked for a production company in Hollywood under the presidency of my wife. My wife was the president of that company. Right. And Susan Levine would read the scripts and tell my wife why the scripts sucked and why they shouldn't buy them. And doing that job, got her to become a producer on a movie and she hired Robert Downey Jr. and hooked up with him on the set and they got married wow. and she <laughs> turned him into Sherlock Holmes and Iron Man. Wow. And the story of Robert Downey Jr. and the story of me, you know, like I told you, luckily I met a woman who believed in me more than I believed in myself. Well, that's important. Who you are sleeping with is going to change who you become. If you're sleeping with a person who believes in you, at least as much as you believe in yourself, but ideally more, who sees a bigger vision for you, you got to have people in your life who see a bigger vision for you. And for a lot of people, I fulfill that function, not because I'm sleeping with them, but because I'm going deeper than that. They pay me a lot of money. I'm, I'm like a really expensive prostitute. They pay me a <laughs> lot of money. They pay me more money than they would pay any prostitute. That's for sure. Because I can see a bigger vision for them. And I, I believe in them more than they believe in themselves because I know what it takes. They see, you know, I want to sell 500 books. I see how they can become a New York Times bestseller. I see how they can have a seminar where they can charge $5,000 or $10,000 a person to teach what they know 
in a tropical location like Acapulco, Mexico, and have people fly in from around the world to make that happen. I see what's what's possible for them. And for a lot of people, the only person in their life who's going to be that person is the person that they're married to or sleeping with. And for Robert Downey Jr., it was Susan Levine. And for me, it was my wife. And I wouldn't be the man I am today without her belief in me and help and support and telling me, yeah, that's the greatest idea, like the Carnegie Hall idea. We were at a conference and I said to her, you know, this guy who's the speaker at this conference, he's a living legend of entrepreneurial marketing. We should do a whole conference just full of living legends of entrepreneurial marketing. She's like, oh, I love that idea. That idea, that belief in that idea took me, Clint Arthur, and put me on the stage at Carnegie Hall in New York City with Martha Stewart and Ice-T and Jerry from Ben and & Jerry's and Michael Gerber. And I'll never forget when my wife put a slide, like she was doing a tech run-through at Carnegie Hall while I was taking care of some other minuscule details that had to be done and nobody could do it except for me. And she's texted me a photo of one of my brands up on the screen at Carnegie Hall. And she said, congratulations, Clint Arthur just made it to Carnegie Hall. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's, it is so important to be surrounded by the right people. Your support group makes such a difference, especially the one you're living with. Incredible. Okay, so we've talked a lot about success, but your life has not always been shrouded in success, working with celebrities or walking the red carpet and meeting presidents. In fact, you had a very scary experience at Las Vegas shootings several years ago near Mandalay Bay. That must have been terrifying. So what happened? How did you cope with it? Working in Las Vegas for many years, I started figuring things out and started getting good opportunities. And one of the opportunities was to meet Mike Tyson. So I went to his play. He has a one man or he had a one man show at the MGM. And I was supposed to meet him after the play. But at the end of the play, the manager comes out and he says, ladies and gentlemen, please remain calm. There is an active shooter event going on down the strip by Mandalay Bay. We don't know anything else. The safest place for you to be right now is right here. We're just going to keep you here in the theater until we know more. And I'm like freaking out because mm -hmm. I'm there with a whole bunch of my clients and my wife. And I'm thinking, wow, are we sitting ducks? What if the gunmen come in here with machine guns? Will we be killed in the basement of the MGM Grand? Is that what it all comes down to? 30 minutes later, the manager comes back out. He says, ladies and gentlemen, we are told that the active shooter event is concluded. The strip is still closed. But if you want to leave the theater, you can leave the theater right now. And I said to my clients and my wife, follow me because I've been working in Las Vegas for more than a decade. I know every back alley and nook and cranny and every hotel in Vegas. And I took everybody and led them through the bowels of the MGM Grand out to the back, away from the strip. And we walked down Coval Lane to the Hard Rock Casino. And we went to the diner and had hamburgers and milkshakes until two o'clock in the morning when we could return to our hotels on the strip. And it was a very scary evening, but it was one of those things. I mean, you know, what is the secret of success? Well, it's understanding that who you are is more important than what you do or sell, but it's also breaking through the fear and the procrastination and the doubt that holds most people back. And for me, that was supplied by the shaman telling me I was already dead and asking myself that question, if this was going to be the last year of my life, what would I want to accomplish? And that night when people are getting killed, yards, just yards away from where we were, 
it helps you to have a more intense experience. We were doing something called extreme VIP speaker training, one of my seminars that weekend in Las Vegas, and everybody had a super extreme transformational experience that weekend. I mean, nobody forgot that weekend. Everybody remembers that weekend. It was, it was super intense and amazing. And, you know, it's, it's facing mortality that helps you to feel more alive. Mm. Okay. Your book, you tell lots of stories about overcoming impossible situations. In fact, you say now, so much so that impossible is one of your favorite words now. That's great. But thinking about someone who might be listening now, what advice can you give for dealing with adversity? That question, if this was going to be the last year of your life, what would you want to accomplish? That question took me all the way from being a nobody to the Today Show. When I was interviewed by Brooke Shields on the Today Show, mm -hmm. they asked me, you know, Clint, you ask yourself a great question every year. What's that question? And I said, if this was going to be the last year of your life, what would you want to accomplish? And then Brooke Shields says, wow, that sounds scary. And I said, when it's scary is when it's great. That was New Year's Eve. 2013, December 31st, 2013. That night I went out drinking and partying with my wife, went to a lovely steak dinner, had a bottle of wine, martinis, champagne, all until 1.32 o'clock in the morning. Went to Times Square, met Anderson Cooper. You'll see that photo of Clint Arthur and Anderson Cooper. That was taken on New Year's Eve in Times Square. The next morning I woke up and I said to my wife, you know what? It's weird, but I feel like I'm done drinking. That came out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it, but what happened was getting on the Today Show had been my big ambition for my life. I wanted to share my message. And I did it on the biggest TV show in America. And that took me to the peak of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, self-actualization. And when I self-actualized, suddenly... I went from being a guy who was drinking almost every day to a guy who hasn't had a drink now in more than eight years. And if you want to handle adversity better, what I found over the last eight years where I've really come up against some major adversities, big, big, big things that would have bankrupted me had I been drinking still and didn't have the confidence and the belief in myself and the clarity of mind to be able to figure out the ways around impossible situations. One of which, of course, was West Point when I had 100 people who paid me $5,000 to attend my seminar at West Point and the brass at West Point Military Academy calls me up 26 days before the event and says, your event is canceled. You can go screw yourself. And I had to figure out how do I do it without the permission of the brass at West Point. And I did. I did have my conference on West Point Military Academy without the permission. And I delivered everything that I promised. And one of the speakers at my conference was Lieutenant General Russell Honore, who had previously evacuated New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. You've seen him in many pictures with George W. Bush on top of a big people mover military vehicle driving through the floods of New Orleans. And he said, all the opportunities are on the other side of impossible. Strong That's words. What That's what he said. But I never would have been able to handle it. I never would have been able to get there if I hadn't been drinking. If I hadn't quit drinking, I would have gone out drinking. When the, when the general called me up and said, screw yourself, I would have gone out and drowned my sorrows instead of trying to figure out how to make it happen, which I did. Okay. So you want to deal with impossible? Get grounded in reality and stop numbing yourself with drugs and alcohol, which I've been clean and sober completely now. I quit smoking pot accidentally in December of 2009. And then I quit drinking alcohol unexpectedly on January 1st, 2014. Cool.
Let me take you back to what you said about Brooke Shields interviewing you on the Today Show. You say you've learned how to harness the power of fear and you use fear kind of like a divining rod for success. Mm -hmm. What did you mean by that? Well, the great thing about going on TV and doing interviews, even like this one, is that the goal is to be able to speak from your true knowledge, your true expertise, if you really know stuff. And there's, a, look, I, I get a lot of people who come to me because they want to change their career. Okay. What I try to do is guide people in the direction of being an expert at what you really are an expert at, rather than trying to become something else. That's what I try to do. And when you go on interviews, like I was on the Today Show, you're speaking from your true knowledge in the moment. And when I said to her, when it's scary is when it's great, that was just something that came out of me. I had never even said that before. But when the pandemic hit in 2020, it was really interesting. I was in the middle of an eight-city speaking tour. I had just done the, the fourth city, which was Los Angeles, I was hosting Tony Robbins' birthday party. And after that event, all the other events that I was scheduled to speak at got canceled. And I said to my wife, hey, look, we could go back to our apartment on the 13th floor in Midtown Manhattan and be quarantined in New York City. Or we could stay here in LA and hole up in one of our loft apartments here in LA. Or we could rent a house in Arizona or Florida, someplace warm. Or we could just go down to our favorite resort in Acapulco and turn this into a vacation and just quarantine in the hotel suite. That's what we did. And we hadn't been to Acapulco in many years because unfortunately, even though it was our favorite place to go vacation, it was quote unquote, dangerous, the murder capital of the world. And we went down and checked into the hotel. And then I heard an announcement. The US State Department recommends that all Americans return to America, wherever you are in the world, you should go back to shelter in place in America. And that's when I rented my first villa in Acapulco, because if they wanted everyone to go back to America, I don't do what everybody does. I do the opposite of what everybody does. And so we just stayed in Acapulco and two weeks to slow the spread turned into four and a half months in Acapulco. The night before we moved into that first vacation villa, I was terrified. This place didn't even have a front door. You just walk up the steps and you're in the outdoor living and dining area. The bedroom had like the flimsiest little one eighth of an inch thick slide bolt, you know, that you would use to hold a drawer closed, not a secure <laughs> door. And I'm thinking to myself, is it safe? Are we going to get killed living in a house like that? Can I buy a gun? I went online. Can you buy a gun in Mexico? You can't buy a gun in Mexico. It's against the law. They throw hunters, hunters from America, many times have arrived in Mexico with their guns and been immediately thrown in prison because you can't have a gun as a private citizen in Mexico without a special license from the army. Well, when we walked into this first vacation villa up the steps into the outdoor living room and dining room. And we saw the view that we had seen like a week before we went there and looked and we saw the view we, and we, and we had our own huge private pool and a chef and a private maid and five bedrooms and a yard for the dog. We looked at each other and we said, well, what have we been doing all these years going to hotels instead of living like this? And then we started looking at real estate, houses available for sale. And at the end of the four and a half months, we had an accepted offer on our first of two villas that we now own in Acapulco. And 
I realize now whenever anything is scary, that's when it's really going to be great. That's where the opportunities for growth occur is when you face the fear and do it anyway. My favorite quote from General George S. Patton, accept the challenges so that you can feel the exhilaration of victory. That's how you come alive from feeling the exhilaration of victory. Because when you feel the fear, usually it's unfounded fear. Usually fear is just all in your mind. And when you triumph over that fear, that's when you feel the exhilaration of victory. Okay. So what do you think holds people back from achieving their success? Fear, procrastination, and doubt. Those are the things. And, and really, the big fear is the fear of looking stupid. That's yep. the main reason why people don't do stuff. You don't want to look stupid to yourself or to your friends and family. And the funny part is that your friends and family don't do anything. Like they have no basis to to criticize you because they don't do anything. Maybe they have a job where they punch a clock, but they're certainly not writing books or trying to create businesses or products or seminar events. They're, They're not doing anything. So their criticism is really meaningless because they have no basis to criticize. But the fear of looking stupid to yourself is a real one. And people don't want to look stupid in their, they, they don't want to look stupid to their own self. Oh, I'm such an idiot for trying. But I have found, and I know it may sound trite, but things are trite because they're true. The only thing you'll regret is not the things you do, but the things you don't do. Everything you do, you're going to learn and you're going to grow and deepen your understanding of who you are. And as long as you don't start criticizing yourself, as long as you're kind to yourself and treat experiences as learning opportunities. People say 13 years chasing the Hollywood dream, driving a taxi after graduating from the Wharton Business School, you feel like a, an idiot. And I say, Hey, look, you know, that was my path. That's what I had to do to learn the most important lesson in business, which is who you are more important than anything. Okay. So you've found out who you are and you've preempted my next question, really, because we're getting close to the end, but I want to take Clint Arthur right now, take him back to the taxi driver where he's chasing the Hollywood dream, writing the screenplays. What advice would you give? Well, when they had me on the Today Show, they really wanted me to talk about what they were calling the push and pull of life. There are some parts of life that push you forward and there are some parts of life that pull you backwards. How do you know when to back off? How do you know when to quit? See, how did I know when 13 years was when I should quit? And my real advice for anyone who's trying to do anything is that you have to do it as hard as you can, as full out as you can, until you feel like you've done everything you can and more, and you really are overdue and you've paid all the dues that you could possibly find, the only way to do anything for real is to do it beyond what could be humanly expected. Otherwise, you're going to feel like you didn't try hard enough. If I had quit trying to be an actor and a movie star and a screenwriter after nine years, I would forever be wondering, what if I had just gone that 10th year? You know, it takes 10 years to make it in Hollywood. What if if I had only gone 11 years? Oh, what if maybe I just could have given it a couple more months and I would have broken through. You know, there's that story like three feet from gold. Yeah. 
Well, I, okay. Well, I was three years from gold. I, I went three years beyond the gold and I still didn't make it. And I'm okay with that. I, I did what I did. And I know that I gave it everything that I had. And that's my advice is that if you're going to do something that you should do it as, as best as you possibly can, you're always going to have the regrets and the wondering what if, and that's the real thing you need to avoid. Okay. So I've listened to your book. I'm on my second listen now. You shared some great stories today for which I'm so thankful, Clint. Thank you so much. I know there are many more stories in your book, Wisdom of the Men, and I'm sure people listening will want to know how to buy it. So how do we get hold of your book? Amazon.com. And it's available on Kindle. It's available on hardcover. And it's available on Audible on Amazon.com. Crack off a credit off your Audible account. Get that. Or get the hardcover. The hardcover is amazing. Really. (laughs) (laughs) I think I might get that too. Okay. So if someone wants to reach out to you, how do they contact you, Clint? Clint. Dot com with three T's, C-L-I-N-T-T-T.com. Why three T's, Clint? I told you I work with a lot of authors, speakers, coaches, people who want to follow in my footsteps because I have my footsteps have gone where you want to go. I've gone from being the biggest loser in Hollywood, a complete nobody, to becoming somebody who people pay 10000 25000 or more for my coaching, consulting, seminars, et cetera. And that's what most people want. One of the experts that I worked with was an inventor of the science of nameology. What is nameology? That's Mm -hmm. the science of names. And she said to me, Clint, I wish you had an extra T on the end of your name because the T's always end up on top, like Trump. I said, oh, that's interesting. Adding an extra T. So I went and I tried to get Clint with two T's.com, but that wasn't available. But I got Clint with three T's.com. And it seems to be easy to remember. And it's working quite well thanks to the science of nameology. Clint with three T's.com. Yeah. Well, that message is certainly stuck with me for sure. Well, that's it for today. Thank you very much, Clint. You have been truly amazing i might even call you back when you get your next book out for sure well thank you for listening to the secrets of success i hope you enjoyed the show and it's helped you to ignite your passion to be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel you need to realize your dreams i really hope you've enjoyed the show if you have please hit the follow button to make sure you don't miss any new episodes leave a review and share It really does make a huge difference. And without you, we can't succeed. So please go ahead right now and hit the follow button. I'm always searching for great success stories. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a a guest, please contact me at jeff-smith.com. I'd really love to hear from you and welcome you onto the show. For today... Clint Arthur, thank you so much. You have been incredible. And that's all from me. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.